0: Good afternoon, or good evening, I should say. And thank you very much for coming along tonight to um, the Sydney uh, Food at Sydney seminar series co-hosted by the Sydney Environment Institute and Sydney Ideas. Before we begin, I would like to make the acknowledgement of country, which is especially important considering we're talking about grabbing land tonight. I'd like to acknowledge and pay respect to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. It is upon their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built. As we share our own knowledge, teaching, learning and research practice within this university, may we also pay respect to the knowledge embedded forever within the Aboriginal custodianship of country. So my name is Alana Mann, I'm a researcher in the Media and Communications Department at the University of Sydney and also within the Sydney Environment Institute and it's a pleasure to have you here tonight. So a very topical topic, foreign investment in Australian agriculture, which has always existed, but which is increasingly being associated with the conversion of some of our most productive farmland into mining. While concerns have been raised about foreign investment in Australia, of course, Australia is immune from the notion of land grabbing as it's understood in the global south. In the Global South, land grabbing refers to the large-scale acquisition of land, which is often illegal, underhanded, and or unfair. Land grabs force people from traditional lands. They have minimal or no consideration for sustainable natural resource use and often undermine (coughs) local and national food security. Some of the poorer African and Asian nations have experienced such land grabs due to corrupt national governments. But many of you will know that in other cases, those governments have not managed to stay in power as a result of those practices, for example, Madagascar. The land grabbing debate has been gathering pace since 2008 in particular, when the non-governmental organisation Grain, based in the US, began introducing the issue in the public sphere. Since then, a lot of media attention has been gained and there has also been a lot of activity from academics, some of whom you're going to meet tonight. So, tonight we are very delighted to have with us an international panel, in fact, who I will introduce. The format for this evening will be that each speaker will speak for approximately 15 to 20 minutes. We will segue from one speaker to the next and at the end have a panel Q&A. So please make notes and save your questions until then. So I'd like to introduce our speakers for tonight. Professor Bill Pritchard, who is convener of the Food, People and the Planet Node. He is actually part of our staff at University of Sydney. Sociologist, Emeritus Professor Jeffrey Lawrence from the University of Queensland also joins us. Along with our truly international guest, Dr Sarah Siphol, a, Le- a geographer at the University of Leipzig in Germany, and she is actually staying as a visiting scholar at the University of Queensland until August. So our first speaker tonight will be Sarah, and I'd like you to join me in welcoming her to the podium.
1: Thank you very much, Adana, and thank you, Bill, for inviting me uh, to come here today. It's a great pleasure to discuss this very topical Issue with you. Um, Looking forward to hearing your questions and remarks, maybe in the end. And yeah, so I will um, like take the first um, half of the talk. Jeff and I have prepared together, and uh, we basically have three main topics we would like to address. So first, we will give you a bit of a background on the land. Discourse and how it has actually emerged and developed. Then we will come to the situation here in, in Australia and look at like what has been driving um, increasing investments in Australian agriculture and how have these been perceived. To then come back to a bit more the, the global level, if you like, and identify the driving forces behind the this increasing interest in, in land and agriculture and um, also identify some counter-movements. Okay, to start with the grain report already mentioned by Alana. So this is really, probably um, you could really like link the whole uh, land grabbing discourse, the whole debate back to the year 2008 and this specific report that has been published um, (coughs) under the title Seize the 2008 Land Grab for Food and financial security. And in this um, very short uh, summary I've given you here, you can already see the main topics of the whole debate. So they, the, the background of, um, against which this report was published in 2008, the food and financial crisis, which um, they then go on and say in tandem triggered a new global land grab. On the one hand food insecure governments are snatching up vast areas of farmland abroad for their own offshore food production and on the other hand food corporations and private investors see investment in foreign farmland as an important new source of revenue. If left unchecked this global land grab could spell the end of small-scale farming and rural livelihoods in numerous places around the world. So what you can see from this very brief Um, summary is that um, there are two main groups of actors that are being identified. On the one hand side, governments that are looking to secure food in a new, novel kind of way. And on the other hand, um, more private actors, corporations and um, other um, organizations, institutions from the private sector which are looking at farmland from a slightly different perspective or a novel perspective as well in terms of um, a new source of revenue or, as we might say now, a new kind of financial asset class that is emerging. And you can see there is um, an an emphasis on the foreign aspect, so foreign actors coming to the kind of context and doing something there, um, acquiring land. You can see that it's about large scale, so the, the, the scale somehow plays a very important role, and you can also see what this um, grain, like this NGO is um, fearing, uh, what, what might be happen, happening, or what could be the implications of this, um, this process, what they are observing, the end of small scale farming and family farming, so you can see what's driving them in publishing this report. And then very quickly after that it um with the, the notion of land grabbing was picked up by a lot of um different actors then in the media. <coughs> so um, large newspapers had <coughs> lots of reports um on the topic and almost in every kind of newspaper probably you could have read something then about land grabbing. There were major um global conferences in the academic sphere um taking place. You could see um, initiatives um, emerging, such as the Land Deal Politics Initiative, they were major projects trying to um, collect data and provide the public with data on supposed land deals or land transactions taking place, such as Farmland Grab, which they are collecting um, media articles and providing them online, or the Land Matrix, a very ambitious project aiming at visualizing what was taking place. and so on and so on, lots of reports being published by <coughs> major NGOs and institutions as well as um, really numerous um, books, publications uh, in major um, journals in the area, peer-reviewed articles etc. So basically um, if you look at this here, um, the reporting on land grabbing was pushed. Uh, reporting somehow dealing with land transactions, land deals under the headline of land grabbing really mushroomed and uh, reached a peak, if you like, in 2011-2012 with more than 50 publications appearing during that period but then also decreased uh, a little bit again so this is a bit how the discourse evolved in terms of numbers and publications on the topic. But at the same time there were also some problems uh, with the whole debate, and um, so it's in, in this first um, expression by Holt Krimenez, um as he said, like land grabbing is grabbing headlines, so the topic or the notion of land grabbing was so powerful and it is such a powerful metaphor in a certain way that it was also used for all different kinds of purposes and just to maybe raise attention because it was so successful. And it's been the land rush, uh, as some scholars then say, was accompanied by a literature rush. So people were trying to publish things very quickly and roughly, uh, maybe sometimes not that much based on really um, evidence on the ground. And there was a varying terminology. So alana gave you some, some kind of approach or definition of land grabbing, but there has never been a single definition in the land grabbing literature, if you like. Um which is not necessarily a problem. But if you're then trying to count hectares or count like see what what is really going on and accumulate numbers and so on, if they're based on different definitions of course, then that could be problematic. So and you had varying understandings. So some people originally would say, Oh, it, it's it's necessary that a foreign government is involved in the land deal or in the land transaction while well, then afterwards people said, but why do these need to be foreign? Maybe also domestic actors can be as much harmful as foreign actors, so we should also include them, and so on. And last but not least, uh, also people said, yeah, why don't we? Why why do we always look at land? Water is as much important as land. And people came up with resource grabbing and green grabbing. And afterwards, maybe saying, oh, but it's actually about control and about power. So why don't we talk about power grabbing? So I think altogether this. In a way, reflects uh, specifically the moral um, assumptions that are underlying this this um, idea of grabbing, grabbing something. In a way, it's it's a pejorative pejorative term saying there's something going on which we don't like and we don't want it. We want to stop it, basically. And then in a bit later stage than 2013, 14. Um, People also started to look at this whole literature rush and do a bit um, systematic analysis of what has had been published to that date. And there were six major, um, yeah, problems maybe associated with the with the land grabbing uh, literature. First of all, the, the problem of aggregate aggregate data. So a hectare is not a hectare with one uh, major point here. So you cannot just compare one hectare to another hectare if you're just accumulating it in a in a certain way doesn't really tell you something about what's going on. There were methodological and political weaknesses um, involved in the literature. Um, so it was often based on media reporting or sometimes just um, land use that were announced, but it was not really sure if they had really been taken place on the ground, etc. So, but these kinds of nuances sometimes got lost in the debate and then Specific uh, intentions of investments or ideas um, to promote certain kinds of land transactions. Then, at some point, were just turned into facts and became real in, in a certain way. And what was also identified as being problematic was the kind of disembedding of the local context, so um, disregard actually of the complexities and also the ambiguities of land tenure even on the ground, because it was supposed to be such a global problem in in a certain way than just the local context where uh, somehow ignore it in the debate and also of course what you could see was an apparent blurring of different motives being involved so people um, specifically activists and NGOs trying rather like more trying to stop things while other um, stakeholders um, also being involved with different intentions etc so and this was not always that clear. So who was speaking on what behalf with with what kind of interest? And two last points um, that uh, that were also mentioned in the critical debate then was uh, that the grabbers actually were often in a way conflated with their countries of origin. So it would, you would could read something like, "Oh, China is grabbing land in whatever um, sub-Saharan Africa." So, but of course, China. It's not grabbing, it's also more complex. And it's a largely anglophone debate as well. So there were some publications in French and German and Spanish, but the the huge amount of literature was really mainly um, based in English-speaking countries and at English-speaking institutions. So this um, as such was also ignoring other language contexts. So then there was this call, or there has been this call for a second phase of land-grabbing research and um, saying that there is a need now to reflect, challenge, and reframe, and nuancing, and sometimes confronting existing narratives of the so-called land-grab. So what have we learned from this debate? I would say there there are two aspects. So first of all, I think it's been really showing in a very increase a very interesting way the challenge of co-production of knowledge between different kinds of actors and stakeholders between activists between people who are working for NGOs between academics and how difficult it really is to work together in a certain way to produce knowledge and to really say what 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 is the state status of this knowledge what we are producing at the moment and it also really um, called into question I think the position of academics within this context and the question of how can we as researchers really respond to fast moving contexts, to things that are going on very quickly. If there is political urgency and political injustices happening, how can we communicate this? How can we participate in, in that kind of struggle without sacrificing the methodological and analytical um, yeah, scrutiny. Maybe we should have as as academics. And then another second aspect, uh, which I think is it's really important, that the whole debate alerted us to the importance of the ongoing and maybe increasingly um, unequal power struggles over access to natural resources, um, which. I think it's really a, lo- a major outcome of the whole debate, and also the multiple dimensions that are associated with land. Um, so, like land is—it's uh, been really showing that land is associated with many more things. It's not just a resource, but it's—it's uh, it's, um, significant for community, for collective memory, for questions of inheritance, identity, and so on. But also associated, of course, with situations of um, dispossession, expulsion, uh, conquest, et cetera, and as being productive, um, it is a vital um, vital for human security or human survival on this planet, while at the same time also it's become increasingly considered as a lucrative asset class, so these are probably the personal conclusions I would draw from the debate. So to come to the Australian context, now, so what's been going on in the Australian context? As you can see from one this one headline, Qatar land grab angers Bush, is, um shows you that the the term has also been used in the Australian media. So to a certain degree, um, you, it's, it it has also arrived in in the Australian context and has been used here, and specifically within the, within the context of so-called foreign investment, and this is. I think, nicely summarized in this quote by um, from the journalist Tim Lee, who wrote that there are few issues in rural Australia more emotive than the spectre of foreigners, large, secretive, cashed up, and corporate buying up our precious farmland, helping to hasten the death of the family farm. In a recent survey, farmers have ranked foreign ownership as one of the greatest threats uh, facing Australian agriculture. <coughs> So in our project then now, we've been looking into what actually has been driving these kinds of foreign investments here in Australia and how what can we make of them. And there are four main aspects uh, which we think have been um, supporting uh, the interest of investments in, in Australia. So first, an, an assumed low-risk environment in terms of a stable system of politics <coughs> and governance particularly in comparison of course to other contexts context where the, um, investments uh, have taken place such as Sub-Saharan Africa maybe or some states in Asia. Also a strong interest in securing investment, so the idea that Australia really relies on capital coming from outside, so that's a very strong belief that is strongly um, promoted in, in, in policy as well. Then it's a sophisticated agricultural sector with existing infrastructure, available skilled labour, and Australian agriculture is also often promoted as um, or promoted to investors um, due to the fact that it's largely unsubsidized. so you people would hear people saying, "Oh there are no subsidies, so there is no risk of subsidies being taken away and threatening um, efficiency or or um, the prices, price levels, and it's largely export-oriented. And uh, furthermore, if you look at the how Australia is located <coughs> on the map, it has strategic position to enter certain emerging markets, specifically those um, in Asia, or, and due to the increasing number of free trade agreements, maybe also easy access or um, increasingly um, easy access to, to these markets. And last but not least, also the um, land value has been increasing since 2000. So land has been appreciating, so it's, it seems like it's it's worth investing in the land itself as well, while at the same time, people um, would say, yeah, it's but it's still undervalued in comparison to other contexts, so it um, will or might still increase in the future. So to give... Oops, Sorry, that was the wrong direction. To give you one example, then, and Jeff is um, going to take over then with a second example of foreign investment taking place um, here in Australia. So, one um, actor or one country or region of origin that has received much attention are the Gulf states, which which have become incredibly rich over the last decades uh, due to their um, resources. oil, but at the same time they are very um, land and water poor, so they don't have lots of possibilities to produce their own food, which means they are highly dependent on importing food. And in the food crisis then in 2007-2008 somehow worked as a wake-up call for these um, countries, um, which I think is nicely summarized in this quote, where a convert says the Gulf countries face perspective that someday they might not be able to secure enough food imports at any price, even if their pockets were lined with petrodollars. Specifically, in that situation where other countries might not be willing to sell them food because they just put an export ban on on their um, commodities or would not, yeah, would not just be willing to sell their food anymore. So this then has triggered a certain reorientation of their food security policy. In terms of um, redirecting sources to try to improve local production, but also investments in food production abroad. And one country that was targeted, if you like, was Australia, and specifically here is the case of Hassad Food, which is owned by the Qatar um, Investment Authority, which is actually a sovereign wealth fund. So this um, sovereign wealth fund is backing or has set up um, uh, the Hazard Food Company in 2008-2009. Uh, and it, this company has the mission of producing or like investing in food production on a global scale. And um, <coughs> set up Hazard Australia then as an Australian company to invest in um, sheep and grain production here in Australia. And within a relatively short time, um, Hazard Australia has purchased 300,000 hectares of land and has the goal of um, exporting 100,000 lambs per year and within the Australian context this is like in a way critically um, perceived specifically because of the, the food security motive that was originally driving um, Hassad's investment. So there was one major concern that it, this would be undermining the principle of markets so it would somehow take the, the food out of the market and just transport it back to the home country without entering markets at any stage. So that was a major concern. And um which was then part of the whole um situation that in eventually led to the revision of Australia's foreign investment regime, which we've just seen on very recently. And yeah. What just last point from my side? Then it is. It uh, was quite interesting to see how Hassel Australia, as the company, then reacted to this criticism and uh, shifted their kind of communication, at least from the very strong driver of food security, to then emphasizing um, the very much commercial and market-oriented character of their investments. And now I'll hand over to Jeff will talk about the
2: Chinese investment. Good Good evening, everyone. And uh, I'd just like to thank Bill, too, for the invitation to come down from Queensland to talk about about these issues. Um, I think of particular interest uh, to Australians has been Chinese investment in Australian agriculture. Um, Basically china faces severe environmental and resource constraints Um, there's a red line that the chinese have identified which is about 120 million hectares and below this it can't feed its people it stands today about 122 million hectares that are available but about two-thirds of the land available is actually degraded uh, and has poor water supply and climate change is going to impact Uh, in China, uh, especially for for grain production in the north. The Chinese also want to increase urbanisation, and so you end up with uh, 40% of the Chinese uh, people are are urban, uh, but this is likely to uh, increase to 60%, so by 2030. And that's going to have implications for for food imports. Chinese have got about 800 million farmers at the moment and they want to reduce that in the next 20, 30 years by 300 to 400 million. So these people will be displaced. These people will go into cities. They'll need food. And, of course, the Chinese are thinking this is a good thing because uh, urbanisation is progressive. Um, But the notion about going global, and you can see here this uh, uh, one Belt, one maritime road, China is looking strategically to invest so that it can ensure food supply but also ensure its neighbours are looked after. It's attempting to develop a policy or policies that will allow it to um, both accelerate urbanisation in its own country but also deliver goods and services to the Chinese economy. It's got these regional ambitions uh, and of course it's got things like the Asian uh, Development Bank as well it's helping to uh, foster. Okay, well, let's look at uh, you know, Chinese in, investment in Australian agriculture in the recent times. Um, China's now the world's uh, largest global food market and what the Chinese eat is in, has many repercussions for, for countries around the world. Um, some of the re- recent purchases people will know about, I'm not gonna spend a lot of time on this, just, there's a list of things, uh, a list of these investments. Uh, The the COFCO, which is the Chinese National Cereal, Oils and Foodstuff Corporation, is China's large, uh, large state business. It's an SOE or a a state-owned enterprise, but it also gets hooked up with private equity when it wants to, uh, to ensure that it it gets, uh, it it purchases the things it wants. Uh, It purchased 50 dairy farms in Victoria for infant milk. Recently, we had Shandong Rui uh, with Cubby Station. Now, this was... again, the iconic Cubby Station. Um, It's the largest irrigated farm in the Southern Hemisphere. It was pretty much um, um, not able to be purchased. We couldn't find an Australian buyer and it went into voluntary administration in 2009. And in August of 2012, the Foreign Investment Review Board said that it had no concerns whatsoever about the purchase of the Cubby Station by largely the Chinese and Japanese investors. the National Party was more or less outraged uh, and it, it said, this is, not a, this is not in Australia's interest. Uh, you can see some of the other things that are going on there, uh, dairy farms, uh, abattoirs. The Chinese actually like to try and own um, the chain, all parts of the chain, so they can actually control that. That's part of their strategy. Uh, you can see there, Coffco with the port uh, of Newcastle, which is uh, for the exploitation of ore and grain. And then some thoughts about the future. The, um, the Honda company uh, looks like it's purchasing cattle stations last year and this year with about 100 million. Uh, there's going to be at least 27 billion spent in Australia, but it's largely on real estate, minerals and gas. It's not so much at this stage on, on land, but an agricultural land. But the interesting thing is that the Kidman & Company uh, potential investment, which Scott Morrison, the treasurer, blocked, as you know, at the end of last year and then again this year, um, is seen to be against, the sale of it is seen to be against the national interest and uh, there was no, no sort of clarification of what the national interest was but it just wasn't in the national interest and uh, it's been suggested cynically that after the election especially if the uh, Liberal National Party get in, it'll be passed fairly quickly uh, it'll be given it, uh, the Kidman the, the Kidman thing was a bit worrying because I think part of it initially was, go- was about the uh, farm, uh, I think it was called Anno Creek or something, Anno Station, and it was very close to the uh, Woomera rocket range, and of course that was seen to be not in Australia's national interest to have the Chinese owning something very close. But they took that out of the equation and it still didn't go through. So we've got to ask this question, as a lot of people do, as, you know, what, what is the national interest? Okay, so what are the concerns that Australia has? And... Well, the first one is that the Chinese government is actually going to control Australian agriculture. Barnaby Joyce is on record for saying, you get a clash of sovereignty, clash, sorry, (laughs) clash of sovereignties. You might take an individual or corporation to court, but could you take a country to court? China has nuclear weapons. So, you know, you've got this notion that it's a communist state rather than private interests that are actually going to buy Australian (laughs) land. And then there is this other interesting concern about transfer pricing, which is if the products don't go into the marketplace, we don't know what their value is. And if we don't know what their value is, how can you tax? And the difficulty there is that transfer pricing is a mechanism, a well long-known mechanism, to uh, move dollars out of the host country uh, to the corporations back home. Uh, if entire chains are owned, what about the role of Australian firms? That's just all about, are we going to be included in the Chinese ideas about the future? The extent of ownership is unknown. That's the whole thing about the Foreign Investment Review Board's very large, it used to be 252 million ceiling for scrutiny. That's dropped down, as you know, now to 15 million. But what has happened before? What what transactions have happened before? We we don't quite know that. Um, There's uncertainty relating to on-farm activities. What are they going to do on the farms? Uh, are they going to asset-strip the resources and then sell the farms off after depleting them? Uh, will they exploit them, in other words? And then there's fears about Chinese labour. And these fears are all about um, the Australia, free trade, Australia Chinese-Australia Free Trade Agreement. Um, it will allow uh, the Chinese uh, access to their own labour on these 457 visas uh, for infrastructure projects. <laughs> and will this marginalise Australian workers? Will cheap labour be brought into Australia, which is... Uh, A concern, Um, but then you get down here this notion of well, we weren't worried about this when the United States invested. We weren't worried about this when England invested all those hundreds of years uh, since since white Australia. But somehow the Chinese are different, and I think these xenophobic overtones have to be looked at very carefully. Um, What is it about the Chinese we don't uh, somehow don't like in terms of their agricultural purchases? Well, we tried to work out what some of these drivers of foreign investment were, and uh, Sarah has actually mentioned some of them. But let me go through them just as a, a way of uh, summing some of this up. Uh, the Availability of land is a real concern here. In the 1960s, uh, the arable uh, farmland per head of population was about 0.45 hectares per person. It's down to half of that now. So ar- arable land is running out. Um, in a real sense. Uh, in terms of changing diets, well, profits can be made. Profits can be made by selling to the, uh, the Chinese, the, the Indian population, uh, in, Indonesians, middle class consumers in places like that, with grain fed, factory farmed, pork and beef and chicken and so on. So there's, there's profits to be made. Um, the notion of peak oil and the move to agrofuels or biofuels, investors can see profits, particularly when governments legislate to have a certain proportion of, uh, of ethanol or whatever in the fuel tanks. Now, that's, that's guaranteed profits if you can, if you can uh, do that. And of course the peak oil, as it's going to decline, uh, the prices are, are going to go up. So looking to move to some, some of these grain products and oils, uh, alternative oils, for agrofuels uh, is seen to be a good investment prospect. The implications of climate change, I've seen figures that suggest that the decline in the world's um, output of agricultural products is anything from about 15% decline to about 50% decline. 50% decline in some parts of Africa. So in other words, this is a real tragedy, a real problem that's likely to come through. So you'd invest, you'd have foreign investment in food and agriculture to try and uh, uh, make profits from that, from the increased price of foods. Um, There's an increased level of investment in global farm assets. Sarah's mentioned this with the Gulf states just recently. Um, The increase in the value of farmland has also been mentioned. Savile's research um, came to the conclusion that over the last decade or so, farmlands increased by about 400%. So this is good investment. This is why capital would be attracted to this. And then there's financial speculation, which we're working on through our work on financialisation. And this is all about... Increases in the price of land, you can make money out of that, but you can also make uh, in, uh, profits from increases in commodity um, commodities. But what I'm interested in, particularly as a sociologist, is trying to find out what's going on in a macro sense. And what this um, fairly cluttered um, thing says here is that if you're starting to think about globalisation, uh, widening, deepening, spreading, you know, increasing interconnectedness and... and uh, uh, bring people and, and institutions closer together over time and over space. Um, that is a phenomenon in its own right. But what we've started to see under globalisation is, the, is neoliberalism. Um, the ideas emerged from the Chicago School in the 1960s and 70s uh, and brought to bear by various governments around the world, including Australia. But if you see um, neoliberalism as an ideology about individual free markets and get rid of the welfare state... You can also see that that directly leads to various practices, which our governments in Australia are a part of. And that is privatisation D and re-regulation tax cuts for the wealthy and so on. Um, But what that's done is to drive financialisation. And financialisation is this increasing importance of finance, profits from financial investment rather than from productive activities. Uh, these new banking uh, banks, uh, private equity firms, hedge funds and so on coming into play, and new mechanisms. And some of these are so difficult to understand. Uh, um, they're just things like derivatives and commodity index funds, and there's a whole range of these things that have been created largely since the 80s that uh, allow people to make very high profits. In other words, these are self-reinforcing tendencies, I would argue. And... You can explain a lot of what's happening in terms of agricultural investment in the fact that the finance firms are looking for profits. They made them in the dot-com, but then the bubble burst. They made them with real estate and then, of course, it all became toxic in the United States. Uh, And now they're looking for agricultural land. So that's some of the explanation, we think, for what's going on today. Then you have as well... um, Various groups coming out saying we, and I'll be very quick with this because I'm running out of time, um, we don't like the idea that there's land grabbing or that there's uh, large scale ac- uh, acquisitions, land acquisition, so the World Bank has come up with its principles for a responsible uh, agricultural investment, and you can read those for yourself, but basically... Try and do the right thing. If you're going to be investing in a country abroad, look after the people. Don't don't do nasty things to them. Um, And if you do respect the rule of law, if you do have desirable social uh, outcomes, clearly this is not a land grab. This is a mutually beneficial investment. And so so the United Nations uh, principles of responsible investment came through. And they are saying, look, let's Promote environmental sustainability. everybody wants to do that. Uh, we'll combat erosion and we'll stop chemical runoff, we'll respect labour, um, look after vulnerable groups, we'll uphold high business uh, standards and ethical standards, respect the rule of law, and of course, we'll make sure that activities are transparent and accountable. Well, um, these five principles great, but they're voluntary and aspiration. they aren't law, and so uh, what we can say there is: Will investors embrace these? Uh, and the criticisms, as I'm sort of alluding to now, is that you know anything that says, oh, there's all this idle and marginal, uninhabited land in the global south for investment is really not a good assumption. That um, state claims of ownership of non-private lands violates the rights of those displaced. Some states say, well, it's our land. I mean, we own this land. It's just that people are on here illegally. Let's get rid of them. Um, Often when these large corporations come in and own this land, again, as part of a potential land grant, uh, it's often for the global agri-food feed uh, and fuel complex. So it goes into the hands of the corporates rather than local people. Wealth is created for the transnational corporations, not for locals, and the voluntary guidelines that I mentioned earlier are unlikely to be observed uh, or um, enforced. Well, there is some other opposition. I mean, as a sociologist, you don't just talk about some <laughs> uh, uncontrollable force that's never got any uh, protest. There is opposition to to um, uh, the large-scale land acquisitions. La Via Campesina, of course, is the, the peasant organisation, um, and <coughs> it's got about 164 local and national organisations in 73 countries, um, uh, representing about 200 million farmers worldwide. Well, it is against corporate-controlled agribusiness agriculture uh, and the displacement of farmers. Um, Bill has written about and is writing more about the BRICS, the, the, the Brazil, Russia, India, China and South Africa. They are tending to oppose the um, WTO and the G7 in terms of free markets and free markets will cure everything. They're saying, well, us be a little bit more... Subtle, a little bit more nuanced about all of this. Um, we think as emerging states in a similar phase of development that we, um, you know, we're going to look at uh, very carefully at what the free market will offer us. You've got various NGOs, Most, many of you in the room will know a lot more about this than I do, but sometimes they're ones uh, providing appropriate technology for small producers, sometimes they're uh, providing microcredit they're providing, uh, endorsing agroecology, they're empowering women, etc. But they generally are against large scale um, uh, ownership of these, you know, taking over of farms and they, they position themselves to look after small scale production. You've also got the alternative food networks, um, some of you will think those as marginal, but the principles about local and regional, about organic rather than chemical, about moving middle agents where you can, about short-chain versus long-chain. They're all positive in terms of local production over things like you know, large-scale acquisition of farmlands. In Australia, um, there's been the tightening of the Foreign Investment Review Board guidelines, and the concerns are about lack of transparency in transactions, the bypassing of Foreign Investment Review, uh, review Board rules, and the ownership of uh, Australian lands by these, SOEs, um, the corporations that, uh, that are government-owned. Um, okay, so, and then the National Register. We talked about a National Register of Foreign Investments. Uh, I don't know if any of you have followed this closely, but uh, what was happening was the, the uh, government said, of course we'll have a, a National Register. We'll make sure that we know every um, overseas company that, that, that owns land in Australia. You know, they'll have to register with the Australian Tax Office. Um, and it was expected that the register would be publicly available. Uh, In March it was revealed that the Australian Tax Office would only release summaries and then only occasionally and the reason was that when the the, uh, the Tax Office looked at what it could do and not do uh, it found that uh, it couldn't provide those figures to the public due to confidentiality provisions in the Tax Act. So we're not actually going to find out who uh, does own that land. All right, here's our conclusion. This is summarising what Sarah and I have said. Land grabbing is a pejorative term. Um, It's a powerful one, it's a motive, etc. But it doesn't have specificity, and I think we've got to be careful about using terms that are very vague and general, like land grab. Is there a land grab in Australia? Well, no, everything's done legally. Uh, There might be land being sold, but is that a land grab becomes an issue? The main reasons that foreign nations and companies want this agricultural land, procuring it abroad, is those factors that I mentioned earlier about decreasing land availability, middle-class consumers, climate change, food. So we've got real things going on out there in the world that's leading to, um, uh, including financial speculation, that's leading to these so-called agriculture. Australian agriculture is attractive for foreign capital. Because we're a stable uh, economy, we've got cheap land, land that's still undervalued, as Sarah said, uh, proximity to Asian markets, so on, and neoliberal settings. And this is very important because, um, and, and Bill has written about this at the moment, market liberalisation is actually the unchallenged, i quoting him, unchallenged ideology of Australian agricultural policy. That's, that's exactly where we stand now. There's very little, it's hegemonic. It's, it's out there and it's not being challenged by uh, the National Party or the National Farmers Federation or whatever. This, we know which way to go in agriculture and it's down the free market road. And so why wouldn't you have investment in Australia from uh, overseas? just a normal part of the capitalist economy. But there's been backlash and protest. Are we selling the farm? Um, what about foreign governments owning Australia's food and farming industries? Governments, not companies, governments. Shanghai and Sofia. Uh, deals are often not transparent. Uh, there's limited information, and um, they will, will foreign farming be sustainable in the long term? I think the thing to say here is that neoliberalism has provided a space for the debundling and then the rebundling of assets. In this case, agricultural assets, so as to unlock and to securitize and to realise value. And agriculture is just the latest. Thing that can be bundled according to the finance uh, uh, people that, uh, that are on the track of making profits. And so it's no surprise that you can put um, grains and beef in with minerals, energy, sell that bundle to investors, um, but agricultural land in that becomes a bit of a tool uh, for people to make profits. So there you are. That's, uh, that's my talk. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you Professor Lawrence and Dr Sipple. and um, just while uh, we're getting ready to put your presentation up Bill. I just would like to um, mention that you can read more about the work of our academics. Uh, Professor Lawrence and Dr Sipple recently contributed a chapter called the financialization of food and farming to the handbook on the globalization of agriculture. And um, please contact us if you would like further, further details. But I'd also like to hand over to Professor Bill Pritchard, who recently edited the Rootledge Handbook to Food and Nutrition Security, which has been described as the most comprehensive <coughs> book on the topic. Not by me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm impressed, nevertheless. So over to Bill.
3: Thanks, Alana. Um, let me, uh, I've got some notes here in just a few slides, but I'll try and be a little bit off the cuff and brief because I do want to leave some time for questions. Um, in, uh, in her talk a moment ago, Sarah mentioned uh, the, the stimulus for the global land grab debate occurring about 2008, 2009, um, just in the wake of the global financial crisis and the associated global food crisis. And if there was one event that I think triggered that more than anything else, it was Madagascar. Um, and I thought I'd just start my talk by revisiting that because it was quite, quite an extraordinary series of events in Madagascar. The government of Madagascar, which was, let us say kindly, not de- democratic in its origins, um, signed a 99 year lease with the Daewoo company of Korea for 1.3 million hectares, uh, which according to, I'm not an expert on Madagascar, but according to estimates I've seen, is about half the country's arable land, um, equivalent to, I think, half the size of Belgium. Um, so one company for, from Korea, in one fell swoop, with a sheet of paper from signed by the president, got half of Madagascar's farmland. And not surprisingly, the, the citizenry of Madagascar thought that was a pretty bad idea. And uh, in con- conjunction with some other complaints they had with the government of Madagascar at the time. Um, went out onto the streets and toppled the government, and I think that the sort of the scale of this really took everyone by surprise. There's no doubt about it, and it triggered a lot of the debate that uh, both Sarah and Jeff have been talking about. Um, as they have said, the estimates on this are very difficult to track down. If you read different estimates, there's anywhere between 20 million and 200 million hectares around the world that have been attributed to being grabbed. Um, But as Sarah and Jeff both said, the definitions of what constitutes land grabbing um, are very difficult to pin down. And the the, the inherent secretive nature of much of this means that even if you were to track it down, you won't necessarily know what's involved. Um, So there there are big unknowns in this whole debate. Um, But nevertheless, it's it's on the radar screens of the global community. Um, Unbeknownst to me, uh, they use this... Sarah and Jeff used this same graph from an article by. Uh, it was, I, I accessed it from an article by Carlos Oyar, which was um, quoted in uh, originally in that source there. And uh, since, as Sarah also said, since that sort of initial shock and people coming trying to come to grips with this phenomenon, there has been like there is emerging second wave of inquiry into the local into the global land grab, and I guess without wanting to sound too much like an academic, because I know this is a public talk, I do want to sort of explore some of that because I think it's um, the initial shock of large companies acquiring land under dubious circumstances is obviously very problematic and attention-grabbing. But there are a set of other questions we might want to ask beyond that, and I <coughs> want to focus on some of those tonight. And um, Carlos Oya, who is a, um originally a South American researcher, now based in the UK, has sort of spent his life Talk, uh, researching particularly issues of livelihoods and uh, wages and conditions of people in rural areas of the global south. And he published an article in 2013, which was cited again by my predecessors, um, which I think went very much to the heart of this problem because he said, and I'll just quote here, talking about the rush of literature on this topic, he said, I've, I've often been struck by instances of literature rushes and how quickly hard to find evidence is pushed into the public domain despite the fact that collecting high-quality evidence on people's lives, labour, land, and so on, is complicated and highly time-consuming. So, you know, what he's saying is that if you go behind the headlines, there is a probably a lot of complexity there that we need to unbundle if we were to understand uh, what is, no doubt, in many cases, a, a series of injustices. Um, and so what I'll do is I will use this presentation to try and... Uh, try and just perhaps not give, give some answers, but at least ask a series of questions about this. So uh, I thought the three questions I have put on the board there are perhaps the perhaps three, three key issues that we might want to consider in terms of this debate. Firstly, what's new and important about this? Um, rich people have been grabbing land since humanity existed, right? So what's new and important about this? Um, is it... I've said, is it the wave of something profound about farming and broadly the relationship between humanity and land and agriculture? Um, Is it more of the same or is it shifting? Is it it new? And is there something about geopolitics which is critical? So is there something, and this was uh, referred to particularly by Jeff in his uh, presentation just then, um, when we talk about Chinese investors uh, in the Australian context. So let me um, let me just quickly go through those three questions. Um, and if we if we were to ask what is new and important about the land grab, I think we need a sense of history first. Because although the land grab came out of the food and the food crisis and uh, the financial crises of two thousand seven, two thousand eight, two thousand nine, um, you know, it's it's uh, these were perhaps macroeconomic triggers, but they were part of an ongoing continuum about uh, the way in which uh, large investors were dealing with land around the world. And I might just refer here to, for historical reasons, we'll think about India as a case study here because there's been some recent scholarship on the history of land ownership in India, which I think is very important in the current context. Um, Without making this too labored, you know, the history of India under the British Raj in particular was a history of princely states and large land-owning elites with tax collectors basically taking money off poor peasants, with the British standing over the top in a divide and rule uh, mentality and series of strategies to ensure that that system of dispossession was part and parcel of the normalised British Raj. Now, upon independence, the new new government of India under Prime Minister Nehru uh, instituted a series of laws to crack down and break that system up. So land sealing laws were instituted, there was land, land for the tiller legislation. So the, the rights of hereditary uh, leaseholders were converted into freehold. Uh, so the peasants were given their own land. You know, Land sealing laws meant that large landowners had to break up their estates, unless they could bribe their way out of it, which of course they inevitably tried to do. But the legislation was good intent anyway. And also with a history of uh, exploitative taxes under the British, the new independent Government of India exempted agriculture from tax, which is still to this day it 's a little bit ironic because, as I was just researching the notes for this talk, I came across an article saying that uh, this has led Monsanto, for example, in India, which owns a lot of land in its own right, to post a twenty eight million dollar profit last year and then claiming nineteen million dollars in tax concessions because it was an agricultural landowner so You know, exempting agriculture from tax doesn't always work for the poor, but you see the context of that. Um, But the point is that there's that sort of, if you like, progressive history of post-independent India with regard to land, but there's been a dark side of that as well that came out of independence. And that dark side really relates to the fact that India post the British era became very uh, beholden to the idea of modernist development. And the government of India, through its constitutional ability to Uh, take over land through eminent domain, was actually a huge land grabber in its own right. And some recent estimates that have just been published on this, and this is land grabbing for dams, for roads, for railways, for industrial zones, for uh, urban expansion and the like. The estimates that have just recently been put together, because there's been no database on this, so historians have to work this out in very very slow and methodical and uh, laborious ways has been that um, we're perhaps looking at something like 20 million hectares of land being taken by the government of India, displacing about 50 million people over five decades, which is quite extraordinary. And one of the researchers says that if you take out the exceptional circumstances of the Soviet Union and China, where you had a, like a communist um, exp- um, expropriation of land for the people, what has happened in India over five decades after independence was the greatest wave of land grabbing. Um, in historical terms ever. Yet there was no, I mean there, there was protests against this but it was not globalised. It was basically accepted within India as being well part and parcel of development. Yet since the year 2000 land grabbing of this nature by the government of India has become hugely controversial. And it's become hugely controversial because the government of India has used this principle of eminent domain not to acquire land for ports or railways or the kind of things it was doing for many decades, but actually to acquire land on behalf of the private sector. So what has happened is the government of India will do a deal with a private company, take, acquire that land at non-market prices, um, because it just had that constitutional power, and kind of the next day sign an agreement with a private sector firm. And so what you've had is a complication of the government's traditional right to take over land for public purposes being conflated with a land grabbing Private sector profit right, and that's been hugely controversial. It's led to massive protests right across India, leading to new legislation, upgrading of the system, of the laws and rights and responsibilities for um, land land expropriation, um, so that landholders now have to be a, be compensated with fair market prices and the like. Um, that legislation's complicated. It's uh, It's not quite as good as I've just painted it there in certain respects, but there has been... The point is, there's been a strong political backlash to this. Now, the the reason I wanted to go back in history a bit and talk about the Indian case is that I think it tells us some valuable lessons that apply globally and perhaps even in Australia. I mean, the first thing is, land-grabbing never happens in a historical vacuum, right? It's not not as if um, a, a private sector entity comes into a country and acquires land that didn't have any past. And so in India, if we unravel what land has been grabbed by the government, either for its own purposes or for private sector deal-making, it's land that's been left behind or has been laid vacant or something because of past land-owning decisions um, of going back to the princely states of India and the British Raj. Um, So so we have to understand land-grabbing wherever it is in a historical context. We have to understand who Who owned land previously and what was the context that allowed land to be grabbed by uh, current investors in the current wave. Um, The second thing is I think that um, the Indian case shows that well, legislation doesn't fix anything but it goes a long way. That if you have a functioning state, if you have functioning legal systems, that allow people to protest and take actions to court, you get better outcomes than in cases where the state is weak and has weak governance provisions. And as said before, many of the cases where the land grab has been most controversial and the injustices have most occurred have been in cases where the government, governments have weak governing capacities and have not been, and have not been responsive to their people. India is not perfect, but there is more of a sense of democracy and governance in India than many other parts of the world. And so there is a political reflex Okay. Um, thirdly, and I think the Indian case tells us this well, is that who has title to the land is not the same as who's affected. So in the case of India, particularly during those decades of public sector land grabbing, um, the landowners, if they could prove title, which is not easy in the Indian context, would get some compensation. But a lot of the land that was taken away was common use land that was particularly important as common property resources for the um, for what the Indian terminology is, the backward castes and tribal populations. It sounds a little bit offensive in the non-Indian setting, but that's the official terminology. Um, So these were people who traditionally didn't have many assets or lands, but grazed their sheep and goats on public-purpose lands. Once they were expropriated, um, they weren't due compensation because they weren't the landowners. And there's a lot of anthropological and sociological research on how land-grabbing in the Indian context has affected not the owners of land whose land was taken away, but other people who had that land incidentally, but crucially for their livelihoods. So I think that's when we understand what's new and important about the land grab, going beyond some of the points about financialisation that Jeff in particular talked about, we have to sort of ask these questions about, we have to frame it historically, we have to ask these key questions about who is affected and why they're affected. I think these are, these are, that's probably the heart of the matter there. Secondly, is it the incipient wave of fundamental changes? Are we going to see the global demise of family farming here? Um, my sense is that the... And I could go into a bit of agrarian political economy here, but, you know, I won't, but you can ask me a question about that. But the, the sense is that, with some exceptions, large investors don't like farming, right? And this isn't universal, but the hor- historical story has been farming's risky, Farming has got biological rhythms that are hard to handle by large investors. So historically, large companies have steered away a bit from the ownership of land. They've made profits through selling chemicals to farmers, by getting farmers into debt, uh, by selling machinery, by indirectly, the terminology is subsumption, by indirectly subsuming the family farm. So poor family farmers are hocked in debt to agribusiness, but the agribusinesses don't necessarily own the land. So are we seeing something new here? I think we are to some extent, that I don't think it'll be universal. And I think, and my predecessors have fleshed out much of this, you know, land grabbing, owning the land, large companies moving in is most important when there are trade issues, when, when the world trade system doesn't operate and food-insecure countries have to take matters into their own hands. So it's an issue of global trade policy it's linked to food security, which is um, very much a mishmash globally at the moment. Secondly, I think there are issues of the industrialisation of farming because as farming becomes more industrialised, the biological rhythms of farming become more manageable and it becomes more able to be purchased and managed by large investors. So there's something about industrialisation of farming which will make make this sector a little bit more amenable to direct ownership. I think thirdly, sometimes the acquisition of farmland actually doesn't have much to do with farming at all. It's actually trophy acquisitions. If we look at some parts of the world, and I'm thinking maybe the South Island of New Zealand or the Rocky Mountains in the US, you've had large companies or celebrities buying land for trophy reasons. What they've done is basically buy high amenity landscapes, continued to run sheep and cattle or whatever on those landscapes, but actually taken ownership away from a productivist logic into a consumption logic. And um, I mean, Kerry Packard did this in the Northern Territory many years ago, which I could tell a story about at first hand, but I won't because of time here today. I was Jamie Packard threatened to throw me in the desert, that's the story
4: <laughs> Part of the interesting, one
3: of the interesting, an interesting moments of my life. Um, and I think, fourthly, I mean, I think financialisation, the, the opportunities for a short-term killing in the market that we've seen with rapid price increases and financial instability has led to direct ownership. So what does this mean? I, I tend to feel that the, the ownership of land by large corporations. The land-grabbing phenomena will be socially and politically uneven because these factors will play out differently in different places. And some parts of the world and some farming environments will be more conducive to these kind of dynamics and pressures than other areas of the land. I don't think we're going to see universally family farming going to decline, but I think we're going to see it under challenge in some environments. Finally, and I will be quick here, the geopolitics of this. This has been covered already by my co-presenters. and I'll just add a couple more points. It is interesting that the Middle East and China fare so prominently in this debate. They're countries or regions that have not traditionally been associated with foreign investment so much. I think... And I think the one point I'll make, in addition to the points that have been made already, is that I think it's very instructive that capitalism works differently in these places, whether it's state-owned firms, sovereign wealth funds, or private firms. The level of sort of corporate governance and transparency that we tend to see in, you know, an Anglo, Anglo-American or Anglo or um, Anglo-British Anglo context that we've sort of inherited in Australia with sort of independent corporate governance boards of directors and quite rigorous, you know, corporate supervision these days. I know there's exceptions to that, but the system has quite rigorous, you know, requirements on companies to disclose profits and the like. Um, the kind, those kind of systemic sort of institutional factors that would lead, for example, if a company wants to buy 100 million hectares, 100 million, that's a bit too much, 100,000 hectares of land, you might have boards of directors or shareholders meetings, putting up, people putting up hands saying, why are we sinking our capital in this? That level of transparency simply doesn't exist, particularly in the countries of the Middle East and China, where the kind, the kind of way in which capitalism is organised and unfolds is very different. And so I think there is more of a unilateral ability companies from those regions to to take over land and not be held responsible to the broader equity structures that might run or own those companies. And I think the one thing I would say is that 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 means they can get away with a lot that maybe a share-listed company in Australia or the US mightn't be able to get away with, but also means I think that they're more vulnerable in some respects to bad business decisions because like, like it or lump it, if, if companies are held to account and if there's investors asking questions about rates of return and why are we strategizing in this particular way, it does force corporate management to... It gives rigour to their decisions. I mean, I think that's got its downsides. It leads to short-termism in corporate management sometimes. But it does give rigour to the process. And um, I was alerted to this. What prompts me to say this is... At the same time that there's so much investment as Jeff and Sarah have talked about from China in the Australian context, sometimes that goes sour. And just a couple of years ago, there was a um, uh, the Chinese Chevalier Group. It actually comes out of Hong Kong, which is backed by mainland Chinese money. Uh, bought a 70% stake in the 100, worth 138 million in the Moriartis Group, which was Australia's biggest fruit and vegetable uh, vertically integrated supplier which supplies a lot of fruits and vegetables to Woolies and coals. And um, it, it basically, that's gone broke. I mean, the Chinese are, are sort of, that's on the fire sale at the moment. And, you know, without going into the specifics of that deal, it's clearly a case where that sort of lack of, lack of transparency and corporate rigour can lead to bad business decisions. Those of you with long memories will know that the Japanese, back, back in the 1990s, went through a similar process where they're, systems of corporate governance were not particularly responsive. And in Australia, there was a lot of talk of Japanese companies buying out the farm. And at one stage, Japan owned 40% of Australia's abattoir capacity, and now it's down to 10%, the Japanese, because of bad business decisions, because of the like, they've gone backwards. So whilst I do understand the land grab from, particularly China in the Middle East, I do think that, you know, we have to be careful in the way we interpret this, and we have to ask questions not just about what those investments are doing to our farmland, but are they they long-term sustainably from a financial perspective? I mean, are are these investments going to last? I'm conscious of the time, so I might wrap up there, and perhaps we'll, with uh, a nod to Alana, we'll spend the rest of the time for Q&A. Thanks.
0: Thanks, Bill. And it's my pleasure to invite our guests back to the stage so they can participate in our panel. Look forward to your questions and I need to make a correction when I introduced the talk I said that grain was US based and it's actually Barcelona based. So, forgive me for that. Now if we can, we've got 15 minutes for questions and if we can keep them as questions rather than comments so we can get as many in as possible that would be wonderful. Thank you.
3: To what extent um
2: have zoning changes by local governments leading to land grabbing occurred
4: in Australia? And I'll, I'll just draw two examples for you. One of them is in the northern suburbs where I come from, Hornsby. And the other one is where I used to live in Canada along
3: the Golden Horseshoe. All that land that was farming, uh, orchard type lands, cherries, strawberries,
4: that sort of stuff, has been replaced by uh, enterprise businesses and man- manufacturing businesses
3: yeah good, good question that's uh, probably a little bit different to much of the material we were talking about today I think there's a one of the problems we have in Australia is clearly a loss of farmland particularly productive farmland near the cities um, I, I, I agree with it's it's I'm not sure about the role of zoning I think that's a little bit complicated I think one of the great um, one of the great drivers of that is actually rural residential living because the you know the five acres the blockies and all this um, that that land is kind of often nominally still in agriculture, but the organisation, it's not it's not productive farmland, so to speak. And once you have people living in those areas, um, you actually have urban <coughs> agricultural conflict over, you know, spray drift and nighttime harvesting, the kind of things that probably legitimately farmers need to do to keep their businesses afloat. So um, I, I think it is particularly along the coastal areas around Sydney, Brisbane, those areas. I mean, we're don't, we don't, not even starting to get to talk about policy and gas and mining. Yep. But just <coughs> urban redevelopment is a big problem in terms of the loss of agricultural right? yeah.
4: land. So.
2: Just quick, um, just from my perspective, uh, local governments are often in Australia cash-strapped. They, they're looking mm-hmm. for funding, uh, and they've got the capacity to rezone, and when they see those big dollars coming in because they're moving agriculture, moving from agriculture to say, uh you have... Uh, Okay. places for manufacturing industry that seem to be beneficial for not only them as well the governments but also for mm-hmm. the constituents so i think that's just a sort of process of of urbanization and industrialization i mean i, I don't see that as a land grab in any way okay mm-hmm. thank, thank you for the
4: presentation um, um my uh, as soon as um, you were talking about some of the examples um one in the that came to
3: mind was Indonesia. I think it's a really good case to you know, to research on. But basically, um, the commercialisation since um, Indonesia
4: became independent has meant that a 100 million hectares of uh, rainforest has been commercialised, and that means grabbed that array of like every like news years well And what recently they found was that
3: over a hundred million hectares, like the pristine rainforest and the, the the benefit that has has been collected and has been butchered and, and burnt down to a place of power. and I think that is the, the greatest impact that we can see like physically and the impact that has on quite, quite warming climate change. That so they should really Look at land grab as a land grab. If they want to use it, they can pay for it. They pay for it weekly or monthly, and they can pay for the the cost
4: of um, fixing their land and fixing the environment and the social effects as well. Um, Do you make any comments on that?
3: It's a disaster. I mean, there are so many elements of this, you know. the destruction of Indonesia's tropical forests, yep. a replacement called the palm oil. It's its a disaster for the indigenous communities. The, it's a disaster for the biodiversity, right? It, it's, it's a disaster, as you say, climate change, the amount of... Um, I mean, those, those forests are so crucial as a carbon sink, globally. Um, and, and they're going up in smoke. I mean, Singapore has to close its windows, you know, two months a year. Yeah. It's just... Um, it, it's, it's just unfolding, just north of Australia, right? What do you say? You, you can't say anything positive about that phenomenon. Can we fix it? Right. In terms of mm-hmm. economy, is it possible mm-hmm. to change? Look, the most productive, pol- rational policy approach that um, I can think of is the RED, the Reducing Emissions by Deforestation and Forest Degradation Program, which uh, is part of the Clean Development Mechanism of the Kyoto Protocol. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, that's, that requires huge amounts of capital to be mobilised. There is some. But if we're talking about saving the forests of Kalimantan, we're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars to be invested to, um, I, I guess, from an economics perspective, what you're doing is you're buying in the negative environmental externalities, I that, I mean, that's what you need to do. Like uh, that, that's, you know, we can't even implement a carbon tax in Australia, maybe we implement something to repair that level of damage. Yeah.
4: Mm-hmm. Hi. Um, Just a couple of you mentioned about sustainability on the property. So once the property has been sold, so I actually heard about a um, a large Chinese um, fertilizer company who bought a property and the increase in cattle went from 600 head of cattle to 6,000 head of cattle on this particular property. And um, the person was telling me about it was very sort of scathing about previous person who hadn't been very intelligent in in their mind in not having enough capital to um, you know work the farm so just in terms of sustainability what kind do we have um, regulations on that when it's private land if you've sold the land i mean what happens then with regulation one about the animal rights you know the protection care of the animals but also about you know, obviously, massive amounts of
2: fertilizer have been used on that property. How do, do we have regulation on that? And <coughs> so, <coughs> Thank you. Thank uh, you. Yes, it's a very interesting question, and uh, the state, of course, states. Territories, they have their own legislation that's supposed to be about looking after the land and land regulations and so on Whether they're enforced is another matter But uh, the point I was making was that a lot of criticism about Not knowing who's owning our land is about not knowing what they're doing on our land and therefore it's going to be environmentally harmful Supposedly. But the the thing about that is, I mean, why would you go into to agriculture to try and, you know, put on more and more animals. Yes, you could make a bit of a killing there, but if you're going to ruin the the land and the soil and the water and whatever, then the property's degraded. And so how are you going to sell that property afterwards? So it's all very well to talk about, you know, uh, resource exploitation, which is a criticism, which is why I put it on the board. That's what people are saying that Chinese will do or some foreign investors will do but it's not really in the interest of people to degrade land um, if they're going to try and sell that land later, or if they're going to try and make profits off that land over, over the next 20, 30 years. So I haven't personally seen examples of foreign entities owning land and then degrading that land or that water. I haven't seen that yet. And just as a throwaway statement, I mean, I've interviewed lots and lots of farmers over many, many decades, and one of the things that's been put to me uh, in, in, over that time is, it's very often the family farmers who haven't got the capacity financially to do things, who will overgraze, um, overcrop, because they just think, oh, if I can do it this year, I'll get enough money, and then I'll be right for the next three or four years. And uh, I've seen that in central Queensland. We've with, with <coughs> completely bare because the animals on that have been just kept hoping that the drought will break. And so these are family farmers that are doing that. Um, They're supposed to be the stewards of of the land, as we know. So, and people have then said, well, maybe the corporates are coming in with their money. They'll save the land because they've got the money to invest in, uh, in in that agricultural infrastructure. In other words, the jury's out. It's a good question, but I don't know uh, what's happening at the moment.
4: Hi, my question is about Sarah and Jeff's study. Um, I was just wondering, um, when you mentioned like the concerns that came up within your research, um, from like the various people that you interviewed. One that didn't um, seem to be there was like the, the vulnerable nature of um, a food system based on like monocropping and um, like la- lacking crop diversity. I wonder is that something that did come into the research but wasn't very significant or like is that an issue that people are talking about as one of the issues of this
1: land-grabbing phenomenon? Okay, yeah, thank you for that question. Um, maybe, it wasn't on the slide, uh, we're just summarising the concerns, especially in the Australian context with regard to foreign investment, but it was definitely part of the concerns in the general land grabbing debate, if you like, so yeah, of course, So the, the main idea or the main concern here would be that family farming, which often, or especially in global South context, of course, would be more based on crop rotation or... <coughs> Um, it brought a broader variety of um, agriculture being grown, that that's within the process of corporatization of agriculture or like more like the transformation into large scale kinds of agricultural types, then that within that context, of course, it would also be turned towards more monoculture and being less diverse or reducing biodiversity. So, if that's something we've mentioned, then we should be added to the picture. Mm-hmm.
0: Thanks uh, again on behalf the audience. I was a bit surprised to notice your your comment on subsidies for Australia. I mean specifically
2: for sort of uh, agriculture and irrigation and, and everything, because I would, especially in the light of this uh, irrigation case, they have I don't know so many hectares of of land, but the land comes with the water entitlements, and they do cotton and some other. I mean proportionally less less of the other stuff. Uh, if they stop something else, they'll still retain uh, water entitlements, and they they can do miracles. I mean whoever owns the land. And the, the question, my question is, uh, do you consider water entitlements as as a subsidy or <laughs> it comes normal with with land? Okay. I don't believe that that's pretty much the same. I mean it is similar in other states, but it's not the same policy. Yeah, I could just briefly comment
1: on that. Thing as well, so yeah, definitely. I think this—that's a really good point. Thank you for that. I think what what you consider as um, government involvement in agriculture or in any kind of other business, of course, um, could be subject to discussion. So uh, when I was putting that on the slide, it was mainly to, to show like the kind of argumentation that is often brought forward in order to attract investment to Australia. So people would say, look, Australia is Australian agriculture. It's, non, it's, it's not subsidized, therefore, you don't have specific risks maybe that you could see in other, specifically, European contexts where um, it's often... Uh, that's the kind of argument I've often heard. Like, if you invest in Europe and then the European um, government or the European Union would decide to take away the subsidies, then um, that changes the, the situation. But of course, I think you're totally right in saying, okay, but government um, involvement and support can come in, in in many different ways, and maybe they, of course, they also are an important factor then to, to consider in the situation.
3: I mean I, I completely agree. I think um, we've, we're boxed into this conception of subsidies which is driven by WTO rules and what constitutes a subsidy. And I think the reality in Australia, it's got better with the new Murray-Darling plan uh, but certainly before then, probably arguably still the case, the over allocation of water to agriculture is actually an environmental subsidy. It's not, it's not on the books, it's not recorded as such. But I think that's, from an environmental perspective, it's clear that um, landowners, where they've had those allocations attached to parcels of land historically, are just, just in receipt of what is effectively, a, in any sense of the a subsidy from the private the public sector. Sorry, the public to the private sector.
4: But yeah. not to produce anything else, but that land there was, there was no oh, yeah. water, that's, water. That's where the assets, yeah, they're buying the water, right? Like, yeah, exactly, yeah.
0: Thank you. I think we've, we've actually run out of time. Uh, I'd like to thank everybody for coming along tonight, and especially those people who asked such good questions to complement what was a very nuanced discussion, I think, that said that land grabbing is as much about words as it is about land. And I would like to thank very much our esteemed speakers tonight Dr. Sipple and Professors Pritchard and Lawrence.
4: Thank <laughs> you.